Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast and Project. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. A lot of great talks we had this week from our residents as we continue with our cardiology module. We also had our first grand rounds of the year on pain management by Sergei Motov. Before we discuss that talk, let's get right into the core content. Our first talk was on non-traumatic pericardial effusions. This was given by one of our PGY3 residents, Kevin Carey. He started off by talking about Beck's triad, something that we all know about. It's testable for the boards, although not that common in real life. So Beck's triad is JVP, muffled heart sounds, and hypotension. Again, this classic triad for pericardial tamponade isn't very sensitive. It's pretty specific, but you're gonna miss a lot of patients if you're simply looking for the triad. The key to diagnosing a tamponade is to look with ultrasound and do it early. This is a simple evaluation to make with bedside ultrasound. I think we're at the point in EM training that we can apply a bedside echo to all patients that present with undifferentiated hypotension. In fact, forget about the undifferentiated part, just all patients with hypotension. You can expand upon the echo by doing a full rush exam, which is the rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension. Here we look at the heart for effusion, RV dilation that's going to tip us off to a PE, and gross evaluation of LV contractility. From there, we can swing down to the IVC to see if it's collapsing or not to aid in our assessment of volume status. We can continue with a fast exam looking for free fluid, and then keep the probe on the belly to assess the aorta for AAA or a ruptured AAA. And then we can bring the probe back up to the chest to look for a pneumothorax. There's a podcast a while back on MCRIT, and we're going to link that in the show notes. What are the classic EKG findings in tamponade? Again, very testable. Sinus tachycardia is the most common, but you can also see low voltage and you may see electrical alternans. Alternans is varied height of the QRS complex as the heart swings within that pericardial effusion towards and then away from the leads. Alternans has a low sensitivity, so it's not going to be seen in all cases, but it's very specific. A tip here is the varied QRS height can be quite subtle, so you really have to look closely for it. As we mentioned earlier, point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, is clearly the diagnostic modality of choice. What are you looking for with that point-of-care ultrasound? Well, first we're looking for the effusion. The size of the effusion doesn't always dictate whether there's tamponade physiology or not. You can have a small, quickly accumulating effusion leading to tamponade, and you can also have a large effusion that's accumulated over time without tamponade. To evaluate for tamponade, you're looking for RV collapse and or RA collapse. You may also see a full plethoric IVC because of the pressure that's exerted upon it. Finally, let's touch upon treatment. If the patient is stable, they're going to be better served by either going to the operating room for a pericardial window or to IR for pericardiocentesis. Now, if they're unstable, we're going to need to be ready to perform a bedside pericardiocentesis. Back in July, we posted a core content review on ultrasound-guided pericardiocentesis that has some great images and videos that you can go and check out on the site. Often removing just a little bit of fluid, even 25 to 50 cc's, is going to have a big effect on hemodynamics and perfusion. So this small volume pericardiocentesis can bridge you to definitive management. Our next talk was part of a series that we do every month called Value Conscious Care. The idea here is to take a diagnostic test and talk about the dollars spent versus the yield so we can understand how we should think about the tests that we order. The question for this week's value conscious care was, do we need an admission chest x-ray for patients with non-chest related complaints? 
The pros here are that chest x-ray is kind of easy, it's cheap and non-invasive, and every once in a while you're gonna pick up something big. I think this is standard care in a lot of county hospitals like my own, because some patients are gonna come in with unknown or undiagnosed tuberculosis or some other infectious disease that it's important to catch on that chest x-ray. The problem is that in real life, the data shows that the delay in care, transferring the patient to the inpatient service, transferring them to x-ray, et cetera, and the fact that this gives minimal, if not no information in most patients, means that you really don't need to do this chest x-ray. And while a single chest x-ray may be quite inexpensive, when we do them for every single patient who gets admitted, this can run up quite the expense. One of the main articles that we looked at was one by Verma back in 2011, and they found that only about 4% of admission chest x-rays actually change management, but not in a terribly impressive way. Two of these patients had increased levels of their diuretic doses, and three of them were obtunded patients who were found to have pneumonia. I think we can all agree that in the undifferentiated altered patient, we're gonna get a chest x-ray. So you can see the results from this study show you're not gonna find very much by just randomly doing chest x-rays on every patient. They conclude that routine chest x-ray films before admission rarely reveal clinically unsuspected findings. Our next talk was another of our series that we do almost every week, EM Journal Update. And this week's review focused on an article published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine a couple months back from Valencourt, Repeated ED Visits Among Children Admitted with Meningitis or Septicemia, a Population-Based Study. This is a great article because it addresses a huge fear among emergency providers, sending home a kid who's ultimately found to have meningitis or septicemia. The study looked at all children between 30 days and five years of age who were admitted with sepsis or meningitis and did a retrospective review trying to find out how many of them presented within five days of their ultimate diagnosis. Basically, they were looking for kids who came in, were thought to look fine and were sent home, but then bounced back with one of these terrible diagnoses. Over five years, this group collected 521 patients that were admitted with sepsis or meningitis and found that 114 of them, or one in five, 20%, had a prior related visit within five days. Now that sounds pretty bad, but there's a vital piece here that we haven't discussed yet. There was no difference in hospital length of stay, critical care use, or mortality between the groups that were admitted on their first presentation versus those that bounced back. So what were the author's conclusions? Well, they concluded, and I quote, in this cohort, repeated ED visits among children with meningitis or septicemia were common, yet they had health outcomes similar to those of children admitted on initial visit. This article came with an accompanying editorial by Steve Green that basically said, sick kids look sick, and physicians should be reassured in discharging well-appearing children who have adequate access to healthcare. This is a landmark article and one that every EP should read because it tells us that we're doing a really good job. There are gonna be patients that are missed, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily gonna get worse while they're at home. Increased testing is not the answer. Our full review of this article is gonna go up later this week, so go on over to coreem.net on Thursday and check that out under our journal update section. Our final talk of the day was given by Sergei Motov, who's an attending up at Maimonides, just up the street from us. The talk was entitled, The Evolution of Pain Management in the ED, From Poppy Seeds to Ketamine. Now, Sergei's a real expert on pain management and has some great talks out there on the topic. You can find a ton of stuff of him on Twitter, where his handle is at PainFreeED, and he has a nice interview on the MCRIT podcast a couple months back. The audio from the recording of the talk isn't 
well, it's not up to the level that we'd like it to be, but I'm going to publish it later this week anyway, just so you can hear Sergey and his points. The big take-home points that I took home from this were really about four or five. Number one is we should forget about concentrating on what the initial dose of opiate should be in the patient with acute pain in the ED. Reassessment and titration are the keys. Titrate to effect in order to avoid the other side effects with these drugs. Number two is that ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia and nerve blocks are going to revolutionize the way that we relieve pain in the ED. We as emergency practitioners need to embrace it and become a master of these modalities. Sergey, not a big fan of IV acetaminophen. He finds it to be extremely expensive. It doesn't reduce opiate use. It doesn't provide enough analgesia over simple oral acetaminophen. And again, the cost is really the biggest issue here. It can be up to 30 to 40 fold times as expensive as the simple pill version. How about ketamine? Sergey had a lot of thoughts about ketamine and he loves using low dose ketamine for pain. The keys for him are to use a lower dose, somewhere between 0.2 and 0.4 mg per kg, and give it slow. Don't push it fast or you're going to see more side effects than if you give it as a slow infusion. Sergey recommends giving it as an infusion over 10 minutes in about 100 cc of normal saline. What's the future of pain management in the ED? Well, according to Sergey and a lot of the data that we have out there, it can't be opiates. Sergey believes it's going to be multimodal approach to pain, where we think about the different types of channels that are involved in pain and the different medications that target these different receptors. He includes things like lidocaine, and not just the topical lidocaine or injectable lidocaine at the site of an injury, but systemic lidocaine. Tricyclic antidepressants are also going to be part of his armamentarium, as well as the usual things like ketamine, NSAIDs, and acetaminophen. Finally, Sergey went into a couple of cases where we typically use opiates as our first line and gave some alternate recommendations. Let's start with renal colic, something that's terribly painful and typically treated with an NSAID and an opiate as the first line. Well, Sergey still uses the NSAID, but then he adds 1.5 mg per kg of lidocaine IV. The idea here is that there are sodium channels involved in the pain process, so why not block those too? Not a huge amount of data on the use of lidocaine, but Sergey's feeling is that it's pretty benign and he's had good effect with it. What about trauma? The example used here was a patient with an open ankle fracture dislocation. Instead of the high dose opiates we typically use, how about a little bit of ketamine and then a nerve block? If this is an area that really interests you, I strongly recommend that you check out Sergey's website, painfree-ed.com and we'll put a link in the show notes. He's got a ton of resources and a lot of links to the literature. Before we finish up this week, we're going to bring on one of our third year residents, Jenny Beck Esme. Now Jenny was on the podcast a couple weeks back discussing pearls from our airway workshop. This week, she's going to give us some pearls from a talk she gave this week on common pediatric cardiology issues. Jenny, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Swami. Happy to be here. So in my talk this week, I talked about a variety of different pediatric cardiology topics, focusing mostly on SVT and myocarditis, but throwing in a little bit about Kawasaki. So we'll talk about pearls from all three of those. So starting with SVT, in young patients, they come in with very vague symptoms. The parents may notice irritability, fussiness, sleepiness, poor feeding. These symptoms are so vague that they present a lot later into the course of their SVT than older children do because older children are able to tell us they have some discomfort in their chest. Because these little kids sit in SVT for a longer period of time, they will often have some circulatory congestion. So in general, if the kid has been tachycardic for greater than 48 hours, they're likely to have evidence of CHF. 
So when you think of CHF in young children, remember they tend to present with wheezing and respiratory distress. They don't have the classic CHF crackles we see in adults. Also, you have to remember to perform an abdominal exam on these kids to feel for hepatomegaly because a large liver is a good indicator of circulatory congestion. That's my first pearl. The second thing to think about with SVT is that you want to consider underlying etiologies. The arrhythmia may have been precipitated by an infection or a toxin that you don't want to miss. And then also, of course, these patients may have a structural or an electrical problem within the heart. So in general, kids coming in with SVT don't go home. We can send sometimes adults home from the ER after their SVT is resolved, but these kids need to come in to look for an underlying cause. And then the last consideration in pediatrics with uh, SVT is that you have to avoid using verapamil in really young children. In kids under the age of one, verapamil has the potential to cause a profound hypotension and a subsequent circulatory collapse, and so it must, must, must be avoided in these patients. This effect has been most commonly described in the literature with the use of verapamil, but the potential actually exists with all calcium channel blockers and beta blockers in this young peds population. So if you're going to use these medications, use them with care. So those are some great tips. I think it's nice to differentiate the adult SVT from the kid SVT. So kids who present, especially infants presenting with SVT, you're going to want to admit them and get them worked up because they probably have some underlying cardiac problem that you need to identify. Whereas most adults, we break the SVT, they end up going home. This tip about calcium channel blockers I think is also critical. Now we often will use just adenosine in adults as well, but I've had some pretty good luck with calcium channel blockers in the older population for breaking the SVT and keeping it broken. You're going to want to steer away from those medications in pediatric patients. So let's move from there to myocarditis. That was sort of the second topic that you touched on. So what are the big pearls here? Okay, so with myocarditis, pediatric patients have a wide range of presentations. They could have a very mild presentation with no symptoms and only some subtle EKG findings, or they could present in cardiogenic shock. Yikes. So what are you going to most likely see? Most likely, you will see dyspnea, some respiratory distress, and they may have an abnormal respiratory exam. This can be a really, really difficult diagnosis to make since children present with respiratory symptoms all the time and most of them are not sick. In fact, when I was reading for this talk, I found in two studies, 84% of patients required more than one visit to a doctor within 14 days before the diagnosis of myocarditis was made. The most common initial diagnoses given to these patients were pneumonia and asthma. And in really young kids, the clinical presentation can be nearly identical to bronchiolitis and is often missed. Like we talked about with SVT, children presenting with heart failure are likely to have wheezing, not crackles. So my take home from reading about this was to always carry this diagnosis in the back of my mind when I'm seeing a wheezing child. Always perform an abdominal exam to evaluate for hepatomegaly and never assume that wheezing is just a reactive airway disease. The second thing about myocarditis is that vital signs are vital. We know this in emergency medicine. If something in the vital sign doesn't make sense, we're supposed to get concerned. This is true for myocarditis. One of the clues that your patient may have myocarditis and not just some respiratory virus is a resting tachycardia that's out of proportion to their fever. Yeah, that's a great tip. I think myocarditis is very difficult to identify. I've seen two kids who came in with myocarditis and they went. one of them went on to need an LVAD. So you want to be really wary of this particular uh, disorder. And I think that tachycardia out of proportion to exam, tachycardia out of proportion to fever, may be the only sign that you get. 
So from here, you talked a little bit about Kawasaki. Now that's a really big topic, and I know you didn't delve deeply into it. We'll have to touch on that another time for the podcast, but what was the one tip that you did want people to carry out of this one? Right. This is a huge topic and could have been an entire lecture in in itself. So I talked with one of our pediatric emergency medicine attendings about the one thing that she wanted to make sure we knew about Kawasaki and these kids. So we often brush aside pediatric chest pain because we think ACS is impossible in kids. But if a child has a history of Kawasaki, you should be very concerned about their chest pain. If they have developed the dreaded Kawasaki complication, the coronary aneurysm, they are at high risk for myocardial infarction. Early after their episode of Kawasaki, they have a risk of MI due to thrombus formation at the site of the aneurysm. Later on, their coronary aneurysm will heal, leaving a fibrosed, sclerosed artery that is really narrow to begin with, and then on top of that, they have accelerated atherosclerosis, giving them the coronary arteries of a full-grown adult. In any child presenting with chest pain, specifically ask about a history of Kawasaki so as not to miss a possible MI. Those are some great tips, Jenny. You know, I think uh, asking even adults about a history of Kawasaki is going to be important because even those 20, 25-year-olds coming in with chest pain, if they've got a history of Kawasaki, I'm going to be more concerned about them for cardiac problems. So some great pediatric tips on cardiology, a little bit of a mixed bag of what you talked about, but thanks for coming on the show and giving all your pearls to everyone else out there. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over to the site and see what we've got working. This week, the site's going to feature a core content piece on hyperinsulinemia euglycemia therapy for calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose from Jenny and one of our outstanding Tox faculty members, Daniel Lugasi. Come on over and check out the site, visit us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at Core underscore EM. 